Welcome to Science Talk, the more or less weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on November 19th, 2010. I'm Steve Persky. Why do women live longer than men? What is David Pogue's complaint about the Kindle? Why is Scientific American pushing for more music education? Editor-in-Chief Mariette DeCristina and I will discuss all these questions related to content in the November issue of the magazine. We spoke at the Scientific American offices. Going to do something a little different. We usually talk about the feature articles in the magazine, but let's talk about the departments, the columns, and the and the uh, the other kinds of monthly feature, not feature articles, but features to the magazine. And one of them is the monthly editorial, which is now called the Science Agenda. And the agenda item this month might look a little strange to people if they open up a science magazine and they see this editorial from Scientific American all about the importance of maintaining our arts education, especially music. Right. I mean, maybe C.P. Snow's Two Cultures has never been more more uh, prevalent in certain ways. Let me address, Steve, why an arts and music editorial in Scientific American is actually not a strange thing you know, or not a surprising thing in a science magazine. The fact of the matter is scientific studies have shown that music actually helps students learn in a couple of key ways. One is, first of all, a lot of the audience probably heard about the Mozart effect, right? And there have been millions of dollars made, I'm sure, on selling anxious parents uh, on uh, listening to classical music CDs. Right, and the, while, <laughs> the image of uh, pregnant women with headphones on their on their pregnant bellies. That's actually a research image that right. Steve is referring to. So it was, it was really done. And the Mozart effect as such didn't prove to be really – you know, a powerful effect at all. It was largely discredited in many ways, although I have to say a lot of parents and kids listen to some beautiful music. Right. This is the idea that if you just play classical music to a baby or even to a fetus, that you're going to boost their intelligence and it's really been discredited. But but real experience with when I say real experience, maybe not a fair way to put it. Let's call it interactive experience where a student is actually playing an instrument, where you're physically engaging with it, not just listening to it and thinking about it, although there are, I think, some lovely life benefits to listening to it and, and thinking about it and contemplating it. But science has shown that music training, real training, uh, any instrument you play, can help your brain process in a couple of key ways that aid in learning. And with everybody's concern today about the state of U.S. education, nonetheless science education, this seems like a useful thing. And I'll explain those. There's a couple of, of key ones that I think parents and, and others should keep in mind. I mean, if nothing else, you're going to learn how to count to four. <laughs> um, so one of them, speaking of learning to count to four, is, is the um, the brain, when you're playing an instrument of any kind, learns to process sound better. Now, that may sound obvious, but it has some interesting implications. It helps learning when you're trying to concentrate on a difficult task. For instance, if you're sitting in a biology class, you are able to listen, absorb, and process the sounds from your teacher's mouth better than you would have been without that interactive practice with an instrument. But we have actual data to back this claim up. There's actual data to back this up. And, and in a world of multitasking, right, where so many of us are trying to do more than one thing at once, people who've played a musical instrument who are listening, processing the music, and you know, using the mechanics of their body and the, the mechanical processing areas of their brain to play that instrument are also able to multitask better. 
So that's one process. And then a second one that I'd, I'd like to mention in particular is that people who, students who learn how to play an instrument are better at absorbing and processing pitch and timing. Now, that also may sound obvious, but the implication is not obvious. That is, for instance, that it would make it easier for those students to learn a new language. In particular, languages that are sometimes challenging for Western speakers, such as Mandarin, where a change in pitch and timing can create a whole different word meaning. Right. The uh, the uh, editorial talks about the word, and I, I don't know how to pronounce it correctly, but it's either ma or ma, I think. And one means mother, and the other means scold. So the example is if your ma uh, ma's you to practice the violin, it's probably a good thing. Now, speaking for myself only, if only I had practiced more at the piano, I could have helped you with that pronunciation, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. You studied piano. Any, any other instruments? I did study a bit of piano and flute. I, I proved to be rather abysmal at keeping to my practice schedule, <laughs> at least for the flute. The piano, um, when I was – maybe this dates me – I remember my father taking me aside and saying, Mariette, I'm very sorry – I can't I have to stop the piano lessons for a little while because they cost four dollars a week. Wow. Well, I think that the larger point here is that as you know gr- granted, we're all under budget pressures, the economy hasn't done us any favors lately, but as we're considering what to do with programs, ways to keep or retain music training in schools can only benefit learning, and they shouldn't be the first places we look to cut. You know that Meg Whitman spent almost as much money, I believe the figure was $161 million in her unsuccessful campaign for the governorship of California as the entire annual budget for the National Endowment for the Arts. That is a telling and rather disturbing statistic, Steve. And we mentioned last time we spoke that David Pogue has joined us as a columnist. And he has a, a really interesting take on ebooks, Kindles, Nooks, uh, whatever else is out there, the Sony Reader. And uh, why don't you talk about some of some of what he's concerned about? Right. Um, Dave Pogue writes for us technophiles, and you, you others may know him also as a personal tech columnist for the New York Times, and also an Emmy award-winning correspondent for CBS News. What he wrote for us is called was uh, an essay called "Trouble with E-Readers," and you might say, "What what is the trouble with e-readers?" Well, a, a couple months back, Amazon. Released some information that said that ebooks were sell- were selling more than hardcovers for the first time in history. Now there are, as Dave pointed out, a couple of caveats to that. One of them is that paperbacks sell more than both of them, so that's that's an obvious one. But the fact is that ebooks are not ready yet, if they ever will be, to kill books. And books themselves, on the the, kind, the paper kind, you know, still have a lot of advantages over this technology. And and David goes through those. Right. Primary advantages you can. After you read a regular book, a printed book, you can give it to your friend. Right. And obviously, if you have an e-reader with a certain kind of software for reading that book, you can't easily pass that to another person who has a different e-reader. Right. You, well, you can't or do Or a different it, service. You can't really do it at all. I, I think uh, Amazon is instituting a new procedure where you can loan out your e-copy of the book to somebody else with a Kindle for a couple of weeks, though. 
So it's it's not a permanent. It'll just disappear from their Kindle after a given period of time. Do they then charge library fines? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Maybe and, they should. And as you know, when when you've borrowed a book from somebody, chances are you don't read it within the first two weeks, if ever. If you're like me, you put it on your nightstand and you hope you get to it. Right. And he also points out that the the chances of an ebook in any format still being available even 20 years from now, he says, but certainly, you know, 200 years from now are virtually nil. Whereas if you have a hard copy of a book that was published 200 years ago, it may very well be completely readable today. You remind me, Steve, of a charming cover on the on the front of the New Yorker uh, with a space alien sitting amidst the ruins of a metro area. I'm going to take it to be New York because we're located there and maybe I have a cognitive bias. And he's surrounded by broken pieces of software, obvious CDs, DVDs, e-reader looking things. And he's smiling reading an old fashioned book. Nice. On the other hand, in that Twilight Zone where Burgess Meredith has, you know, he's all alone. He's the last person in the world and he's got all the books from the library and he's excited because he'll be able to finally have time to read the books. And then he breaks his glasses. That would not be a problem with a Kindle because you can just change the type size. And so even Burgess Meredith without the glasses would still be able to read the books that are on the Kindle. So there are, there are good properties. I know that I've had the experience. I really like the Kindle for certain things. And one of the great things about the Kindle is on the, a couple of occasions, I've had the opportunity to present itself very quickly to interview an author. And I was able to get the book immediate. I mean, within two minutes, I had the book so I could review the book prior to talking to the author the next day, rather than drive around looking for a bookstore that might have a copy of the book. So, you know, obviously, everything has advantages and disadvantages. And one of the things that Pogue makes clear is he's not anti-e-reader. He's just saying, we're going to have both. And I think he's right. I mean, uh, just to go back to the pluses and minuses, hopefully Bridges Meredith doesn't drop the e-reader on the floor oh, with his glasses. <laughs> but still, I, you know, and the, the other lovely thing about e-readers, as long as we're mentioning it, is that they, they can hold in memory because they use so little power. So Bridges Meredith doesn't have to get that much charge to keep his e-reader going for an awfully long time. Oh, yeah. You can uh, charge the, the Kindle up and as long as you're not connected up to the uh, – to the wireless system whereby you can bring in new content, it'll last for four or five days on one charge. Because the only time you're actually using any of the the electricity is when you turn the page. Once the print is on the screen for that page, you're not using any power at all. Right, the wonders of e-ink. So as long as we're talking about lifetime, maybe it's a good time to take a quick look at another new column in the front of the magazine called The Science of Health. Hey, why don't we do that? The Science of Health, I should back up and just introduce it, is is a new column we've added recently because so many readers told us that they were really interested in health news. But what they get in the typical publication is the headline, right. do this or do that. Right. The new study, eating walnuts will lower your cholesterol. Right. Um, Which is useless because you're not going to start eating walnuts. Right. Get omega-3s in fish is a good thing, but should you just be popping pills with them? Does that have the same effect? I mean, those mm -hmm. kinds of things are often left mysterious in the day's headlines. So Scientific American, we thought a service we could bring would be to give you the science behind those headlines. In this particular issue, we have an expert writing, Thomas Kirkwood, and he talks about why women tend to live longer than men. 
You know, my father, ever since I was a little kid, one of his favorite jokes, I would hear this joke probably every other week while I was growing up. Hey, you know why women live longer? Because they're not married to women. <laughs> I love your father, actually, personally, but I <laughs> I have to disagree with of him. Of course he's wrong. And, uh, and, and it's the, actually the other way around. It's the other way around. And also data show that women live longer than men and men who are married to women live longer than single men. That's correct. Right. So men who are married to women live longer than single men, but women who are married to men don't necessarily live longer than right. women who are single. And we have – now that we have same-sex marriage – there's, there could be a whole new data set that we could examine to see if my father's contention really runs false, which, you know, I suspect it does. But anyway, let's talk about the real science that we're discussing in this section. Right. What an, in, what an interesting question though, by the way. Mm -hmm. So, so why, why do live, women live longer? We have lots of theories. Your dad has a theory. Other people have theories. My dad but... also believes that ancient aliens built the pyramids. So. <laughs> Let's not, let's not put a whole lot of credence in what he's thinking about. Um, <laughs> where do I take that one? <laughs> okay, you've made me cry now. <laughs> so taking a look at the real science questions behind women, why women live longer than men or tend to live longer than men, because obviously we're talking about on average, not every single woman lives longer than every single man. Um, Thomas Kirkwood, who I uh, should have said to everybody, is director for the Institute for Aging and Health at Newcastle University in England, who uh, authored this article, talked about a couple of studies that support the idea that there may be evolutionary reasons for women to live longer. And even if you take a look at it from the broadly pragmatic standpoint, you can say, you know, if if, if one of the one of the operating mechanisms of evolution is that in order to have your genes passed along, you must be successful at passing them along and then further successful at bringing those offspring, you know, to the ability to create the next generation, then there, there might be certain selective pressures that would encourage a particular kind of body type or body ability. One of the things that happens to all of us as we get older, and I look at Steve and, and me here, aging away as the as the seconds tick by, is that there are insults and injuries that that begin to occur in our cellular, and they, in fact, they're constantly occurring. But the fortunate side of it is that our bodies also have cellular repair mechanisms that are constantly at work repairing whatever damage from the insults that we hurl at each other and also that occurred naturally from the environment. If you think about it, one could say, it might be really useful if women's cellular repair mechanisms were particularly robust. Probably less useful, indeed, than males' um, cellular mechanisms being quite so robust. Because if you want to put a cold practical eye on it, the male of the species, once he's fertilized a female, since the female is the one doing the carrying of the baby, the nursing of the baby, at least in mammals, and the longer-term nurturing more directly – that would be of great benefit to have that female body be very good at repairing damage. Right. It's much more directly involved with the whole process than the male is necessarily, not in any particular individual case, but just as a general rule. Right. We can say that the male reproductive role is maybe a little less reliant on length of life, more reliant on fertility and finding partners, perhaps. And it's, it's helpful to 
put yourself into the point of view of the genes here rather than the individuals. The genes do live forever in a sense. I'm carrying the genes of my of my dad and of his dad and mom and the parents before them. You know, they're the same genes for the most part. There may have been some point mutations along the way, but these particular genes go back thousands and thousands and millions of years, some of them even longer than that. And so those genes as individual entities have achieved immortality. They do it by passing through our disposable bodies. Right. And so now we have speculated on all the logical reasons for those genes to, or for evolution selection pressures, let's say, to encourage systems where females are perhaps more robust and, and can last longer. What does the science say about that? So in this essay, there was a study done in Tanzania where they wanted to see what does what happens to children who lose a parent before the age of 15 and which parent had greater influence on, on outcomes. And one thing they learned was that children who lost a father before 15 were a little shorter than their peers. So obviously they're not getting maybe the, enough nutrition to grow as, as tall as those who have, a, who have a father. Then what happens if you lose a mother before age 15? Kids who lost a mother were in much worse shape. Not only were they much shorter, they were poorer and they didn't live, live as long as the kids who had lost a father. So there was a greater proved um, influence on the difference between whether a father or a mother was lost. Right. Height being a kind of a generally good marker for overall health. And in some other studies, these done in rats, it appears that female rats, the mechanism for repair is indeed looks more robust than that in male rats. And scientists typically use rats because they're a very good analog among lab animals for mechanisms that operate in a similar fashion to those of humans. So there's good biological reason why females in general would live longer than males. Right. And in the rat studies that I just mentioned, if the scientists removed the ovaries of the animals, then those repair mechanisms were no, were no longer better than those of the males. Right. And there were some interesting comments toward the end of the article about the experience of males who had endured castration. And the data aren't really good enough there, but uh, there's some evidence that it, it looks like early – I mean, testosterone is poisonous. I mean, just look what it does to men's minds. But it's also, it's in the long run, it's not such a great thing to have coursing through your body. And, uh, you know, in terms of the individual's health. And so these, these anecdotal looks at, uh, some of the lifespans for castrati or also eunuchs in, uh, ancient Chinese courts, uh, it looked like not having the, the testosterone increased their lifespans. They spent a longer time missing what they didn't have, perhaps. But they had a lot of extra time to read the papyrus. There you go, without dropping their glasses. Speaking of men, one very successful man is uh, Steven Weinberg, Nobel laureate in physics. And we have a Q&A with him in this issue. Steven Weinberg, by the way, at the University of Texas at Austin, is an advisor, one of our scientist advisors for Scientific American. Speaking of columns. Speaking of columns, we'll take a quick look at the 50, 100, and 150 years ago 
column compiled by, of course, Daniel C. Schlinoff of legendary Scientific American fame. Uh, this is pretty interesting. 100 years ago this month, we had an item. The services of Eugene Eli with his Curtis biplane were secured for the making of this first attempt to fly from the deck of a naval vessel to a designated spot ashore. As our image shows, and there is a an artist's rendering of a uh, guy taking off off of what is, in effect, an aircraft carrier, although that's not what they were calling it then because they didn't realize that's what it was. Uh, as our image shows, a platform was erected upon the bow of the Birmingham. Despite squalls of wind and rain, Eli decided to attempt a flight between squalls he had his engine started. As the machine left the platform, it settled rapidly till it struck the water with a splash, which the spectators supposed marked the termination of the flight. Instead, however, the machine rose again and continued on its way. It traveled straight for the nearest land where it descended without a mishap. I wonder what would have happened to the future of the entire aircraft carrying idea had it stayed submerged, had it hit the water and not gotten back off the water surface. I also wonder what would have happened if, if Eli didn't somehow get through TSA security. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, when the deep impact spacecraft drew nearby the comet Hartley 2 a couple of weeks ago, they wound up flying through an ice storm in space. Story two, the Philadelphia Eagles football team plans to retrofit their stadium with wind and solar power to have it run on self-generated renewable energy. Story three, a species of lizard heretofore unknown to science was found in Vietnam when a scientist spotted it being used as the mascot for a local soccer team. And story four, there's an igloo on the street in Hamburg that's made out of 320 stacked and running refrigerators. Time's up. Story one is true. Deep impact wound up flying through ice particles carried away from the Hartley 2 comet by carbon dioxide jets. About two tons of ice come off the comet every second, according to Michael Ahern, Deep Impact's science team leader. Story two is true. The Eagles announced they'll put up 80 20-foot-high wind turbines on top of Lincoln Financial Field and 2,500 solar panels. Together, they'll provide about 30% of the energy for the stadium, a 7.6-megawatt on-site heat-capturing dual-fuel cogeneration plant using natural gas and diesel will turn the stadium into a net provider of electricity to the external grid. And story four is true. There is an igloo in Hamburg made out of 320 refrigerators. It's an art piece by Ralph Schmerberg to illustrate power consumption. The doors of the fridges all face toward the interior of the igloo, and they're open, which is making the interior of the igloo uncomfortably hot, which, I guess, is the point. All of which means that story three about the lizard being found in Vietnam as a soccer team mascot is totally bogus. But what is true is that a newly discovered kind of lizard has been identified in Vietnam by researchers when they found it being served in a restaurant. The lizard is an all-female species that reproduces only by parthenogenesis. The species has been dubbed Leolopus negavantri, which translates to, don't do that, don't, don't do that, and was described in the journal Zootaxa. (laughs) 
That's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the guest blog by our friend physicist Lawrence Krauss titled Forgotten Dreams, A Call to Investigate the Mysteries of Humanity. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet about each new article posted to the website. Our Twitter handle is at Cyan. That's S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 